You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm not introducing any friends today. I'm uh, actually just, uh, it's been great to have some good people here. Have you guys enjoyed that? Having Mike Millette out here, and then also Byron and Annette Davis. It's been good, huh? You know, it was, it was interesting. If you weren't here last week, we had a uh, pro beach volleyball player, Annette Davis, her husband, Byron, who uh, is quite an accomplished athlete himself. Uh, but they just shared some of their story. And I was talking to somebody in our church uh, this week, and they said, well, that was just so cool. I mean, I know that they go around and do that. Like, that's their ministry. And I was like, no, no, time out. No, it's not. Like, this is the first time they ever shared that in a public venue ever, anywhere. Like, we entertained their kids, so because their youngest is pretty young, that they wouldn't kind of hear just what they had gone through uh, experiencing. How did they have to rebuild their marriage after experiencing adultery in their marriage and just what it looked like to rebuild that. And uh, they don't go around and, and say that anywhere. In fact, the, the interesting thing is uh, Byron and I have known each other for a good number of years and have served together. And he had shared that with me as part of his testimony. And uh, Heather and Annette, my wife Heather and Annette, are friends, but they had never had that conversation. They, that would, had never been told. So last Sunday was the first time Heather heard that part of their story about having to rebuild their marriage and walk through that season. And again, if, if you had a friend who was uh, not here but would benefit from that, if it could bring them comfort, if it could encourage them in a tough season, we certainly put up all of our videos, our sermon videos online on our website and then also on Vimeo.com and you can check them out there. Uh, but just a great thing to say, how in the world do we, you know, keep calm and carry on when we face circumstances like that? It's crazy when you face upheaval. It's crazy when you grieve with other people. It's, it's crazy when you incur a loss, like she thought she had the perfect marriage and then it just disintegrated. And how do you keep calm and carry on with that? It's interesting to me because when we think of those ideas, we think of loss. How many of you have attended a funeral in the last year? Just raise your hand if you went to a funeral somewhere, you took time off work, whatever, awesome. I put your hands down. Maybe all of, the, of you in the room can think about the last funeral that you attended. And we've all been to funerals that are, are uh, just long and drawn out, and maybe at times they're just boring, they're uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but sometimes that makes me uncomfortable. And our culture doesn't know what to do with death, right? Like the newscaster will have like, uh, you know, let's, let's pause and have a moment of silence. Glances at his watch, okay, so, you know, another news. And, and it's just the way it goes. I don't even know if they do the moment of silence anymore on the news because I think they don't even know what to do with death anymore. And it's uncomfortable. In fact, attendance at funerals has plummeted over the last decade. I, I think our culture doesn't know what to do when we experience loss or, or a death. And what in the world would it look like? Just before Christmas, we received word that my cousin... Her 19-year-old daughter passed away of complications from type 1 diabetes. And it was brutal. I mean, just brutal that she had gone to work the day before, wasn't feeling that great, started having complications, and passed away. Her dad, when he discovered her, uh, started CPR, but by the time they got her to the hospital, she was completely brain dead. And later that week, they had to decide to turn off the machines. What do you do, where do you find hope when you experience something like that? And maybe for you, you've walked here in this room today with a loss yourself. 
And it doesn't just have to be a death. We all experience losses. It might be a job. It might be a very important relationship to you. It might be that you played the game and you, you, you used your money and it went in the stock market and it tanked and you just absolutely lost that. Whatever it is, you might walk in here today with a loss and you say, how in the world do I find hope so I can rise above my circumstances, keep calm, and carry on? Well, the Corinthian church is a little bit no different they were a little off mission. They had experienced some circumstances inside their church that had gotten them off of being the church. In fact, they had become clouded and confused and in many ways had come to a screeching halt. If you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What had been going on for the church in Corinth is they were planted by Paul, but over time they had started to let things get them off mission. And right now, looking at who they were as a church, they were defined by chaotic worship services. They had arguments about resurrection and a lot of other lifestyle choices. And what was the cost? For them, it's this, that when you or I, when we are focused on what you are instead of who you are becoming, then you're going to lose hope. And I want you to hear that today. That if you and I, if you and I, if we focus on what we are, Instead of who we are becoming, we will lose hope, right? You might look right now and say, financially, what I am is not good. There may be a lot of debt. But if I focus on who I'm becoming or who I want to be, and I take the Dave Ramsey class and something like that, then I can begin to take baby steps. And what happens? From where I am, the circumstances didn't change, but because of the steps I begin to take, the help I'm getting, suddenly hope happens on the inside. Because I'm taking proactive steps, hope begins to rise. I can rise above my circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. But that happens for you and me, right? When you and I are in pain, and we focus on who we are and what we are instead of who we'll become. That's when hope leaves. You add the pain that accompanies grieving. And for some in the Corinthian church, that was true. Perhaps for you, it's directly somebody that you know. Or maybe you have a friend and they've just experienced loss and you're walking along with them, but you're not really sure what to say. You know, am I supposed to say the right words? How do I fix them? And, and you're in pain because they're in pain and you just care for them deeply. And so you're walking along and maybe sometimes you're like me. You're like, I don't know the right thing to say. You're like, Dave, you're a pastor. Right. I've learned over a lot of years that it, you don't always have the right thing to say at all. But I do know what it's like to grieve. And when I lost my dad to pancreatic cancer, it was easy to focus on what I was. I'll tell you what I was. I was in pain. I was hurting, right? And when I focus on what I was in that moment, in that season, in that time, when I focus on what I was, I cannot see what this season is allowing me to become. And if I can't see who I'm becoming, then I begin to lose hope because pain blinds us to hope. And that's the danger of grief, isn't it? That's the danger of significant loss. That's the danger of pain. And perhaps you've seen or experienced any of these kind of conditions firsthand. See if you fit into one of these. Perhaps for you, you experience a loss and you resent God when a loved one or even a pet dies. And so then you resort to self-sufficiency. 
You experience this loss and you're in pain. You're saying, because I'm in pain, I'm just going to take care of me. And God, at times, I'm going to maybe even distance myself from you because I'm in pain. And maybe you'll see that I'm in pain and you'll pity me and reach toward me. But right now, I'm in pain and so I don't know how to approach you, God. I'm in pain right now. I don't know how to approach other people because we're in pain. Maybe for you, it's that you become discouraged and you isolate and you don't grieve with others. You try to just like, like I'm wounded. I'm gonna go away by myself and lick my wounds and then I'm gonna come back and then like everything's okay. And we isolate and we find out that when we isolate, we actually stay within our woundedness longer than when we have community or people around us who love us. Maybe for you, you compartmentalize this belief. I know in my head that those who put their hope in Christ will have the resurrection, that we will see that person again. But right now in my pain, I do not let that knowledge in my head make its way to the truth of my heart because my heart is in pain. And so sometimes we live like an atheist. We have this hope in Jesus, but in the moment of our pain, we live as like there is no hope or a true relational afterlife. Maybe for you, when you're in grief, you pull back from serving. I can't. I'm just wounded right now. I need to pull back, and I'm not going to volunteer. I'm not going to serve. I just need to be by myself. And you basically see the hard season that you're going with is actually being bad. And so you're like, I'm experiencing this, and so God, I'm going to distance myself potentially from you and certainly maybe from other people or people I've served alongside because I just need to take care. I need some me time. I need to take care of me right now. And what happens? We begin to isolate. We begin to lose the comfort of extending service to others. Well, the Corinthian church was no different. They had gotten off mission. And you're off mission when, you be, when you're off mission, you begin to doubt and debate the very thing that should give you hope. Have you ever done that? You get a little off mission in your life. Then you say, God, don't you care for me? Now you know God cares for you. But now, because you're in pain, you begin to doubt that, right? Now I'm going to debate. God, I don't think you really care for me. God, I'm not sure that you actually do. And we begin to doubt and debate. We begin to debate, is the resurrection really going to happen? I don't know what I believe about the afterlife, right? All these things begin to come up, and that's exactly where the Corinthian church was finding itself right now. So Paul, in writing this letter back to the church he planted, helps bring some clarity and some hope to their loss. If you have your Bible, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 35. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, right? This agricultural society, right away he's just saying, listen, when you take a seed and you plant it in the ground, you plant that thing in the ground, it begins to decompose, it dies, and then something has to come to life. But they're in their pain debating and arguing whether resurrection happens when a death happens. And he's saying, listen, you, you deal with it every season. And you're growing, and you're farming, you get it. He goes on in verse 37, he says this, When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. 
the sun has a kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor, right? We go out and look at the night sky. We see that. There's differences. There's diversity in the sky. Verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body, in other words, our own body, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. And you see this. When somebody gets sick and they're, they're dying, maybe an extended illness is happening, you look at it, their, their body has become dishonorable. It doesn't function right anymore. It's embarrassing. You lose your dignity because your bodily functions. Sometimes you can't even make it to the restroom from the hospital bed. You, it is, is a dishonorable body. But what? It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. The body doesn't function. It doesn't work like it used to. It's, it's weak. It's why it's dying. It's mortal. It's why it's winding down. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. He goes on and says, if there's a natural body, it makes sense that there's also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first. But the natural, right? We were formed from the dust. The natural body came first. The first uh, was the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, in other words, we're created in the image of Adam through, obviously, natural means, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, that we are resurrected to be like Christ. All this conversation, all this statement, what is Paul saying? You can get lost in there sometimes. But he's saying, listen, there comes a point when our mortal body dies and we are laid in the ground. And then something happens after that that raises us to new life. What he's saying is this, listen, your body, this body, it's a rental. You think you own your body. You say, it's mine, it's my body, I can do whatever I want. No, your body is a rental and your rental's gonna wear out. And some, some of you have driven your body like a rental car. Not taking the best care of it. And others of you, you've been hanging on to it like it's yours, hoping that you get the deed someday, but you do not have the deed to your body. It's a rental, and we all turn it in. One out of one people die. So your body is going to stay on earth. It's going to be planted in the ground, but not your soul. You will have a new body. Some of you right now, just under your breath, you were like, thank God. <laughs> thank you, right? Because we deal with it. We understand when our limitations begin to happen and our look and whatever else, and you just begin to think, God, I look forward. That's one of the greatest things about heaven. We get something new that's, we trade the perishable for the imperishable. Because this one's a rental. I got to tell you, your pet is earthly. Its body will stay on earth. Your home, your car, your possessions, they're all rentals. Your family is even a rental. Empty nesters, do I get an amen? It changes, doesn't it? Grandparents, can I get an amen? That's right, it changes, doesn't it? We think we own it forever and that we've got everything around us, but the truth is life changes and what we experience is mortality. And what happens is all these things are a rental. That relationship you put so much faith and trust in is a rental. 
Your body is a rental. Your home, your possessions, your car, your pet. So if all your hope is in a rental, then life is sure to make you lose hope. Because that's how life works. It reclaims rentals. That's life. But if you look at your, all your life as a rental, and you as a steward of what God gives you for the season in which he gives it to you, including your body, then you begin to live for an inheritance in heaven that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. There is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, and that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's good news. Yeah, give it up. I'm preaching better than you're responding, except for you over there. So good job. With hope, we have the ability to rise above our circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. I've got in my pocket here, if I can find it, there we go, an acorn. Now this little acorn, I know when you see this, most of you will think of Ice Age the movie. <laughs> but it's an acorn, and when you plant it in the ground, it does not grow into a huge, as big as a stage acorn, right? That's not what happens. When you plant this acorn in the ground, it begins to decompose and it breaks apart. And in that decomposition process, God breathes the miracle of life out of something like a little seed. And that thing begins to grow, not a big acorn, but a big tree that produces a fruit, which is actually nuts, which is a weird idea, right? That the fruit of the tree is nuts. But it produces that, and then it plants a seed. And that, what happens is we think the rental of our body, the rental of our relationships, the rental of our life, that we get discouraged when that thing gets planted in the ground, and we lose hope when we forget that God brings something new out of it that didn't exist before. It's not the same shape. Things will look different when you and I are in heaven Heather doesn't like the idea that scripture talks about that there's neither marriage nor are people given in marriage in heaven. That when we get to heaven, she wouldn't necessarily be my wife. I wouldn't be her husband. In fact, we probably wouldn't even like those terms because now we as the bride of Christ are in, we are reconciled to God. And so he, we are the bride. He is, we have the right relationship with the God who created us, who's never left us, who's eternal, who doesn't look at everything like a rental. He says, now our relationship is complete. Now we're together. And for like Heather and I, I wouldn't even want to call whatever relationship we have in heaven, I wouldn't want to call it marriage. Because marriage is hard. And marriage takes work. And marriage means that, that I, I sin against her and she sins against me and we have to work stuff out. And marriage is earthly. But what we're experiencing there is heavenly. It is so much different that I wouldn't even want to call it marriage. Our relationship is actually going to improve in heaven. Because I won't sin against her, she won't sin against me. We will be so right in our identity and in our relationship with our heavenly father that the relationships you and I have with each other and a husband and a wife have with each other is so different from what we knew to be earthly. And we look forward to that. It's so much better. But what happens? Unless the acorn dies new life isn't going to happen. And so we can know that up here. But how do we transcend it to here? And how do we walk with other people when they're in the midst of grief, when they're in the midst of loss? How do you and I begin to walk alongside them and help them? 
And this is not an all-encompassing set of skills, but if you're taking notes today, let me help you understand how to keep calm and carry on when grieving with others. First of all, I want you to hear this carefully. The greatest witness you can have with people is withness. The greatest witness is withness. What does it mean? It means you are with them, that you walk with them. Some of us think like we, got, we get together and we're like, oh, I got to make sure I say the right thing. I've been to funerals and, you know, many funerals. And you know the time every now and then they pass around the mic. And all the time when they pass around the mic, I see people do this. They reach. I'm not sure what to say, so I'm reaching for something. I'm reaching for something. Maybe it's, maybe it's a line I heard along the way, and I'm just parroting it now. I heard it, and now I'm just repeating a line I once heard, because maybe that's what happens. And, and they just don't know, and, and they say, well, well, they're just in a better place. Well, that may or may not be true, because the Bible is pretty clear that if you reject Christ as Lord, your ultimate destination is not in heaven, right? So people will say, well, they're just in a better place. Well, that may or may not be true. Lord knows the person. Lord knows what happened in their final moments, their last day, their entire life. He's the judge. But that may or may not be true. We try to reach and grab these statements to just to reach. And sometimes you and I need to just have permission to be with people. It's hard for me. Right? I do what I do because God has put a desire in my heart to help people see where they are and see where they can be and help them grow. And so I'm more often wanting to get them on the growth pattern than be with them, right? It's why I do what I do. It's part of a helping profession, right? Many of you are in similar professions or as a, a mom or as a dad working with your children when one of their friends overdoses and dies. And you have to begin to walk with them through that process. But the greatest witness you can have with a person, saved or not, is withness. How do you do that? Let me give you some points. Number one, go to the funeral. Go to the funeral. There's nothing that says, I care, than going to the funeral. And for that, a lot of us, that can be an uncomfortable thing. We've sat through long, you know, ones before. But when you have an interaction with a person relationally over the course of their life, and maybe you're not with them right now, but you show up at this funeral, it means the world to the person who all they're in is they're in pain. And they see you there, and it just means the world to them that you were there. Second, Refrain from fix-it tickets, uh, fix-it statements, fix-it statements. You know what it is, religious statements or, or platitudes or these ideas that we reach for. And the truth is, sharing religious slogans or giving people an overload of information actually insults their pain. When you and I come along and we try to make these platitude-type statements, you, we're minimizing their pain. My grandma died at the end of last year. And uh, I was on the phone with my grandpa a little bit after it happened. And he's sharing the story. And I just, you know, I'm just like, Grandpa, I'm so glad there's this hope, you know, in Jesus. And what am I doing? I'm looking forward because I'm a visionary. God, there's hope. Look, look at where you can, you know, we're, pretty soon you'll be with her. My wife comes up. She's like, grabs my arm as I'm on the phone. She's like, just, just listen to him. <laughs> like, don't try to fix it. All right. Third, the language of those in grief can hear best is love. They hear the language of love. That's what they hear best when they're in grief or they're in pain. Think about the person you know who's in pain. Sometimes they just need you to listen to them, not fix them. 
Sometimes they're going to rage against the world and rage against the machine and rage against God, and they just need you to be with them without judging them for expressing their pain. Well, why do we love? On your outline, love opens the door to share hope. Sharing Jesus without love results in anger and rejection. And sometimes people do. They just see a person in pain and they get so preachy and the person can't hear it because you haven't paved the road with love. You're just trying to get to the information. You're just trying to go to them. But what I have found is this, that when you and I are with someone, when the witness is witness, then what happens is that opens the door to share hope. But we pave it with love first. We love people for who they are, where they are, and the condition that they are without asking stuff in return. But it opens the door to share the hope of Christ and express compassion Say, I'm so sorry for the pain that you're in. I'm so sorry for the pain that you're in. I'm on the phone with my grandpa, and that's Heather's like, just say you're sorry for the pain he's in. Oh, grandpa, man, I'm so sorry for the pain that you're in right now. That does more to be with him than simply in the moment of his loss to share that someday in the future he'll be reunited again in heaven with his bride of 52 years. I'm sorry for the pain that you're in. And last, believe in who they are becoming through this. Believe in who they are becoming through this. When we went through the shooting at Columbine High School, and I'm working with teenagers and with students, and I watched this dynamic happen, that students who had gone through that traumatic experience, who had at least one adult in their life who believed in them that you will get through this and you will get better, they, in their grief, in their loss, they thrived as compared to those who tried to just, in their pain, isolate and go it alone and just maybe surround themselves with their family. But if they just had one adult who would step into their life and say, I believe in you, you're going to get through this. I don't have all the answers. I don't know where it all is. They thrived even though they grieved. That's why here at Sun Grove, we started a youth midweek on Wednesday nights. If you're parents of a junior hire or a senior hire, we have Wednesday nights here at seven now where students can come and be able to go deeper into God's word and they need to be together. And then they need to develop intentional hope forming relationships because they need not to isolate, but have adults and other mentors around them who can pour into them and begin to breathe hope in the midst of the losses that they face. Well, Paul goes on to the church at Corinth. This is actually from the second letter he wrote to Corinth, and he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same things we suffer. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know, we know, we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you will share 
in our comfort. Verse 7, he says, our hope for you is firm. Our hope in the midst of their awful circumstances, in the midst of the sufferings. Oftentimes, Paul was writing letters like these from jail. In the midst of his hopeless condition, he is saying, our hope, our hope, and our hope for you is firm. For where you're going, for who you are becoming. Because we know just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Isn't it a beautiful thing that sometimes as we begin to walk through pain and we are comforted with the comfort of God, we are able to turn around and express that kind of care and comfort to others. Who's the greatest example of withness but God? Who has walked with you through the dark night of the soul? Who has walked with you when you gave him the finger and rebelled against him? When you said, I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. Who is a better example of witness than in your moment of depression and the time that you were distraught, God was there with you? Who is better than Almighty God who in the moment of your ultimate risk, whether it be financial or love or anything else, was right there with you, irrespective of the outcome? He was there when you were formed in your mother's womb, and he loves you. And he understands that the greatest example of witness is withness. So we take comfort then we've received from God. And in the right moment, at the right time, are able to express that comfort to others. And Paul gives us some ideas how to do that. Talking to a friend this week, he gave me a great insight. He had gone through some grief and, and he just said this. He said, this is point number two, if you're taking notes, walk with a friend through the pre-grieving that occurs with extended illnesses. In other words, he says, listen, don't just wait till a death occurs to like come in and be with the person, but walk with them as their relative or their spouse or whoever else, or they themselves are going through extended illnesses. Walk with them. Be there as they go through their cancer treatment. It's why you need a, a community group around you who will love you, support you, bring you meals, care for you. You need that love and that surrounding in your life who will walk alongside with you, go to doctor appointments with you if needed. If your friend has a relative who maybe they're out of town and they're ex experiencing an extended illness, but as you in your regular workplace are working with your coworker, who has a relative who's dying, walk with your coworker during that season. Don't just wait till the death occurs. Call, check in, talk to them. I mean, literally, who in our culture teaches us how to die? Our culture sweeps it under the rug. It ignores it. Our culture thinks, let's just run with the living. Why? Because tomorrow we might die but we begin to walk with one another. Number three, grieving people volunteer to awaken hope. Isolation delays the grief process and keeps a person stuck. Do you know a grieving person? Let me tell you, sometimes we think, I know a grieving person, and I don't want to impose on them because after all, they're grieving. I don't want to ask anything of them because they're in grief. I mean, maybe they just need to be alone, and most grieving people will tell you, that there are the, the moment after, let's say, the funeral happens and the house gets quiet and all the people go away and all the food is eaten from the reception, that it's after that one month, two months, three months that they feel very isolated. But what happens? It's a great comfort to invite 
a person who's been grieving to volunteer with you. Because in pain, pain is a blocker. All they can see is what they are, and they say, what am I? I'm in pain. I'm grieving. And it's tough for them to see who they can become. Professional surfer Bethany Hamilton was swimming, and a 14-foot tiger shark came up and bit off her arm. And so she totally lost her arm from about here up. She's a pro surfer, endeavoring to be a pro surfer at that point in her life. And she's, she's done with the surgery to help obviously stop that. And she's just now awakening to this sudden idea that life is going to mean I got to do everything with one hand, with one arm. And she's depressed and she's talking to her dad going, Dad, why? Why would God allow this to happen to me? A freakish act of nature. Why would God allow this to happen to me? And what's my purpose? I was, I was supposed to be a surfer. And please understand that when you're a surfer, you paddle, then you push up on a board to stand up. If you can't push up, you can't stand up. she got one arm. So she goes on a mission trip in her stuckness with her church to Indonesia to begin to volunteer with people who have lost much more than just an arm. They have lost lives and relatives in their community in the tsunami. And it's there that hope began to awaken as she got her eyes off herself and began to serve and volunteer with other people. And it awakened the hope out of her pain for who she could be. So she comes back off that trip. Her dad rigs up a little rope system with a handle on her surfboard. So as she's paddling along now, as it's time to stand up on the wave, she can grab that handle, slide the board under her push-up, and stand on the board. She's now one of the top professional women surfers in the world. She's living with purpose. But the thing that got her unstuck was volunteering in the midst of her grief. Paul echoes that idea. In fact, he wrote it long before she ever swam. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. No loss, no grief, nothing. Let nothing move you. Always, in all circumstances, right? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain that your life is a rental, that when you give yourself in service of the Lord, that you ensure for yourself heavenly reward and that God sees and he will honor that and he will reward you. And all this is so temporary compared to the scope of eternity. And God loves you where you are and he's with you where you are. And he says, in all circumstances, continue to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And for some of you, you may have found right now that you have kind of pulled back. You've pulled back into isolation and you need to get in a community group. You need people around you who will walk through the ups and downs and seasons of life and try to say, no, I can kind of handle that on my own. And God say, no, go deeper. Yes, do the sermon second half in the community group. But beyond that, build intentional relationships where you yourself are comforted and you also extend comfort to those with the comfort you've received from God. Because when you're focused on who you are instead of who you are becoming, you lose hope. And when you focus on what you've lost instead of what you may gain, then you will lose hope. But you and I begin to see that God gives us a place 
where we will have relationship restored, where hope is eternal, where there is an afterlife that is not only eternal, but it is relational and things are reconciled. And that gives us hope. With hope, you have the ability to rise above your circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. Well, what does it look like? What does it look like when the church, we're the church, right? We go out from here. What does it look like when we keep calm and carry on when grieving with others? What does it look like for a church to do that? Talking to a uh, guy who, one of the jobs he does is a UPS driver. And talking to him after first service, he just said, you know what? This week I was out driving and I was talking to a client and they were just expressing some real grief and some loss with me. And he said, man, you just need to keep calm and carry on. And the person stopped and was like, that was exactly what I needed to hear. And I said, that's it. You're being the church. You are the church. That what happens in here is intended to make a difference in the world out there. Amen? Right? What happens in here needs to do that. So what does it look like when the church reaches the people who are grieving and awaken hope in them with love? Will you watch this video? My name is Damien Reyes. A year or two ago, my grandmother got very sick with cancer and our services were held here at the church. In November, my father passed away. Um, I got in contact with the church, and by having the church kind of guide me through what I needed to do, the process, and how, how everything goes, it, it was amazing. We had a meeting, and they kind of walked me through everything, and uh, step by step, you know, how old was my father, what, what things did he like to do, um, what did he do for a living, you know, what was he proud of. They took care of the timing of the services, the date, what was going to work out for me and the family. If I had enough pictures, um, if I was going to have enough food, how would I like the food? How many people were going to be there? Don't worry about setting up tables. We have that all under control. Just a lot of things to make it really easy for me in the process. Um, if there was any kind of problems, don't hesitate to go talk to the church because they have they have my back. They, they knew what I was going through. There was volunteers helping. You know, there, I didn't have to have any of my family members serve the food because the team was already there ready doing it. They go above and beyond and it's amazing. I felt totally at ease. I felt family was around me. I was felt like I was doing so much at the time and now it was time to finally grieve and think about my dad and not worry about who's paying for this and who's paying for that. And something that it's hard to explain unless you're in that position. It can be really a lot of pressure on you um, not knowing what to do and where to go. Going through this process made it super easy. They did a great job. And yeah, after that, I have family members of my own coming to my church because they loved it so much. You know, they really, they really felt, they felt the love and that's, that's what it was about. It was great to have this team help me and be a part of this. It's really amazing. You know, those, those volunteers, I can't say enough about them. Awesome. Bruce and Kelly Kinnison came uh, to me about a year and a half ago and just said, hey, we just have a heart to do memorial ministry uh, and just put on funerals and stuff for people who are in grief because that, that moment in their life is such a great opportunity for showing the love of Christ and for the gospel. And uh, it's just been phenomenal. And uh, typically when you go to a funeral home or you go to a, a church and say, hey, can we have a, a funeral there? They'll say, well, number one, if it's a church, they'll say, are you a member? 
And if you aren't, you're probably out, just, just being honest with you. That's what a lot of churches do. And then, um, and, and I'm not throwing churches under the bus. I'm just saying that's, that's what they do with their resources. Uh, funeral homes are going to have the a la carte menu. And, and oftentimes churches too. Well, if you want this, 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 it's going to cost this, this, this. And Bruce and Kelly just came and said, man, we just need to do stuff like this for free for people. And, and I got to tell you, it has been phenomenal. Like people will give a gift afterwards because they have been so loved and they've been so blown away by how the church loved them. They actually will make the, like the last, well, what was the deceased person? What was their favorite meal? And they make that meal for everybody who attends a funeral. We've had this place packed in here with just the funeral down here and the food going on up there. And they put the whole thing on. They don't ask anything. And it's just been amazing because people are so loved that they actually give. They're like, we experienced this. We want to make sure other families get to experience this. And they give money back. And that, that ministry, it's self-sufficient. It's running itself. It's not, cost, it's not you know, costing us anything. And I would just say, if there's an area you want to volunteer, and maybe you've been in grief in any of these areas we talked about today, and maybe for you, you want to step up and volunteer with that ministry or any of our other ministries here at church, we want to be able to connect with you uh, on that. And so I just want you to consider how would God allow you to get your fingerprints on his work in and through the church by being the church. And that's the things that make you sad or mad or glad, those are things you should pursue to find your fit to volunteer for him. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I understand that in this room, there are some here today who said, if I died today, I do not know where I would go. I do not know if my sins would be forgiven. And I want you to be clear that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross. He paid the penalty in full. What he asks in return is that you surrender your life to him. You give your life to him. That you believe that what Christ did on the cross pays for your sins. He then will give you his Holy Spirit, give you a new life, make you a new creation on the inside. And if today you're saying, I don't, I don't have that assurance, I don't know that, but I want to give my life to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation for me. Today I surrender to you, God. I've been listening for some time, but today is the day. And at this time, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, nobody looking around, I just want you to pray a prayer like this after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And that you were buried in the ground. And that on the third day you rose to new life and that you were God. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. Wash me as white as snow and give me your Holy Spirit help me to see who I can become because of you working in me today Jesus I'm saying yes to you thank you for listening to the Sun Grove podcast for information on Sun Grove Church visit our website at sungrove.org